This morning we are looking at a marvelous story depicting the unique relationship between Jonathan and David. They are commonly viewed as having one of the greatest friendships of all time. Books have been written seeking to foster and promote in others the kinds of friendship that existed between Jonathan and David. However, their relationship was far greater than a mere friendship. They had an incredible love for each other, but even more than that love for each other, for that love alone does not explain the quality of their friendship. Rather, the love that they had for each other motivated them to enter into a covenant with each other before the Lord. It is that covenant that explains the true uniqueness of their relationship. That covenant is first mentioned in 1 Samuel chapter 18. And I mentioned at the time that that was tremendously significant. 1 Samuel 18, 3 reads, Then Jonathan made a covenant with David because... He loved him as his own soul. The love was the motivation to enter into a covenant. In our text this morning, that covenant is renewed and expanded. If you notice in 1 Samuel chapter 20, verse 8, it reads, Therefore deal kindly with your servant, for you have brought your servant into a covenant of the Lord with you. Then again in verse 16, and Jonathan made a covenant with the house of David. So this covenant is foundational to our understanding of 1 Samuel chapter 20 and the ensuing chapters of 1 Samuel. So the focus this morning is going to be on the significance of that covenant, and we're going to make application this morning in relationship to covenant relationships. But our approach is going to be twofold. First, I will be reading the entirety of chapter 20, making comments along the way uh, to summarize what is taking place. So I'm going to look at the entire narrative, for it's all one whole. And then we will focus our attention on the covenant that Jonathan and David made, for again, it is the foundation of all that we that takes place. So first, we begin by taking a brief overview of the narrative. Brief, but it's going to take some time because there are 42 verses to cover. But I want you to get the overall picture, then we'll focus on the covenant that underlies all that takes place. Well, we begin by noting that David wants to know what offense that he has committed against Saul that Saul wants to so desperately kill David, verse 1. Then David fled from Naoth and Ramah. Remember, uh, this is following the attempt on Saul's part to kill David in the house of Michal. That failed. So David fled from Naoth and Ramah and came and stood before Jonathan. What have I done? What is my guilt and what is my sin before your father that he seeks my life? So why in the world is your, your father out to kill me? Jonathan refuses to believe 
that Saul really wants to kill David. 1 Samuel 20, verse 2, And he said to him, Far from it, you shall not die. Behold, my father does nothing, either great or small, without describing it to me. And why should my father hide this from me? It is not so. So initially, Jonathan doesn't buy into this idea that Saul is out to kill David. And we might wonder concerning Jonathan's naivety at this point, why in the world, after repeated attempts, would he think that his father is not out to kill David? Well, one must remember that Jonathan had confronted his father regarding David in chapter 19, and that Saul had repented and said that he would no longer seek to kill David. 1 Samuel 19, 6. And Saul listened to the voice of Jonathan. Saul swore, as the Lord lives, he shall not be put to death. So Saul had promised before God in the presence of Jonathan that he was no longer going to seek to kill David. So, Saul, so Jonathan is still thinking about this promise that his father had made, and, and so he says, that's not right. My, my father won't seek to kill you. At this point, Jonathan is clinging to the hope that this repentance on the part of Saul is real, and it is lasting, despite what has happened even since that promise had been made. David reasserts and calls upon God to hold him accountable if what David is saying is not true, namely that Saul is out to kill David, verse 3, but David vowed again, saying, Your father knows well that I have found favor in your eyes, and he thinks, Do not let Jonathan know this, lest he be grieved. But truly, as the Lord lives, and as your soul lives, there is but a step between me and death. So Jonathan pledges his assistance to David, verse 4. Then Jonathan said to David, whatever you say, I will do for you. David devises a plan to reveal Saul's true intent with regards to David, to make it clear that Saul really is out to kill David in verses 5 to 7. David said to Jonathan, behold, tomorrow is the new moon, and I should not fail to sit at table with the king. But let me go that I may hide myself in the field till the third day at evening. If your father misses me at all, then say, David earnestly asked leave of me to run to Bethlehem, his city. For there is a yearly sacrifice there for all the clan. If he says good, it will be well with your servant. But if he is angry, then know that harm is determined by him. Then David appeals to Jonathan to go along with the plan, verse 8. Therefore deal kindly with your servant, for you have brought your servant into a covenant of the Lord with you. But if there is guilt in me, kill me yourself, for why should you bring me to your father? Jonathan says that he will tell David what he finds out. Verse 9, and Jonathan said, far be it from you. If I knew that it was determined by my father that harm should come to you, would I not tell you? Then David said to Jonathan, Who will tell me if your father answers you roughly? Jonathan and David make a covenant 
to help each other and to do each other no harm. Verse 11 and following. And Jonathan said to David, Come, let us go out into the field. So they both went out into the field. And Jonathan said to David, The Lord, the God of Israel, be witness. When I have sounded out my father about this time tomorrow, or the third day, behold, if he is well disposed toward David, shall I not then send and disclose it to you? But should it please my father to do you harm, the Lord do so to Jonathan, and more also, if I do not disclose it to you and send you away, that you may go safely. May the Lord be with you as he has been with my father. As I said, we'll look at the details of that covenant in a much greater length later. Jonathan and David finalized their plan, verse 18. Then Jonathan said to David, tomorrow is the new moon, and you will be missed because you, your seat will be empty. On the third day, go down quickly to the place where you hid yourself when the matter was in hand and remained before the stone heap. And I will shoot three arrows on the side of it as though I shot at a mark. And behold, I will send a boy saying, go find the arrows. If I say to the boy, look, the arrows are on this side of you, take them, then you are to come. For as the Lord lives, it is safe for you and there is no danger. But if I say to the youth, look, the arrows are beyond you, then go, for the Lord has sent you away. And as for the matter of which I have spoken, behold, the Lord is between you and me forever. Jonathan then carries out the plan. So David hid himself in the field, and when the new moon came, the king sat down to eat food. The king sat on his seat, as at other times, on the seat by the wall. Jonathan sat opposite, and Abner sat by Saul's side, but David's place was empty. Yet Saul did not say anything that day, for he thought, Something has happened to him. He is not clean. Surely he is not clean. But on the second day, the day after the new moon, David's place was empty. And Saul said to Jonathan his son, Why has not the son of Jesse come to the meal, either yesterday or today? Jonathan answered Saul, David earnestly asked leave of me to go to Bethlehem. He said, Let me go, for our clan holds a sacrifice in the city, and my brother has commanded me to be there. So now, if I have found favor in your eyes... Let me get away and see my brothers. For this reason, he has not come to the king's table. Saul realizes that John is covering for David. Verse 30. Then Saul's anger was kindled against Jonathan, and he said to him, You son of a perverse, rebellious woman, do I not know that you have chosen the son of Jesse to your own shame and to the shame of your mother's nakedness? For as long as the son of Jesse lives on the earth... Neither you nor your kingdom shall be established. Therefore, send and bring him to me, for he shall surely die. Then Jonathan answered Saul, his father, Why should he be put to death? What has he done? Saul, because he is so angry, actually attempts to kill Jonathan. Verse 33. But Saul hurled his spear at him to strike him. So Jonathan knew that his father was determined to put David to death. Jonathan takes word to David as was previously promised. 1 Samuel 20, verse 34 and following. And Jonathan rose from the table in fierce anger. 
and ate no food the second day of the month, for he was grieved for David because his father had disgraced him. In the morning, Jonathan went out in the field to the appointment with David and with him a little boy. And he said to his boy, run and find the arrows that I shoot. As the boy ran, he shot an arrow behind, beyond him. And when the boy came to the place of the arrow that Jonathan had shot, Jonathan called out after the boy and said, Is not the arrow beyond you? And Jonathan called after the boy, Hurry! Be quick! Do not stay! So Jonathan's boy gathered up the arrows and came to his master. But the boy knew nothing. Only Jonathan and David knew the matter. And Jonathan gave his weapons to his boy and said to him, Go and carry them to the city. Jonathan and David have a tearful meeting in person. And as soon as the boy had gone, David rose from beside the stone heap and fell on his face to the ground and bowed three times. And they kissed one another and wept with one another, David weeping the most. Now we have Jonathan and David's parting words, verse 42. Then Jonathan said to David, Go in peace, because we have sworn, both of us, in the name of the Lord, saying, The Lord shall be between me and you, and between my offspring and your offspring forever. And he arose and departed, and Jonathan went into the city. They leave each other in peace and in confidence, because they had committed themselves to God is their judge and protector. So all this elaborate plan simply to prove that indeed Saul was out to kill David and that David needed to flee from Saul's presence. But this forms a unique bond between Jonathan and David, in which Jonathan is going to demonstrate supreme allegiance to David, and David is going to return that allegiance to Jonathan. Now we want to focus our attention on the role that the covenant played in their relationship. For what makes David and Jonathan's relationship so unique? The answer is the importance of a covenant which was the foundation of that relationship. One might say, was it not their love for each other which was so unique? Well, yes, that is true in part, but only in part. For it is much more than the fact that they had a love for each other. It's that they finalize and seal that love for each other by forming a covenant, forming a covenant. The motivation for entering into the covenant is love. First Samuel 18.3, then Jonathan made a covenant with David because he loved him as his own soul. So that was the motivation to enter into this, this covenant. The purpose of the covenant is to remain faithful to one another when that love is tested. Notice 1 Samuel chapter 20, verse 14. 
If I am still alive, now these words, show me the steadfast love of the Lord that I may live. And do not cut off your steadfast love from my house forever. Key word there is steadfast. Steadfast. God's God promises to be faithful in the love that he shows to us. God's love is steadfast. By God's enablement, we seek to be steadfast in the relationships that we enter into as well. For notice in verse 14, show me the steadfast love of the Lord. That is what is unique and so essential. We need to understand this morning the fickle nature of human love. The fickle nature of human love. Human love comes and goes. It is not steadfast. It wanes, it deteriorates, it ebbs, it flows, it increases, it decreases, and along with it, the commitment that is to accompany that love increases and decreases. All too often, when circumstances change, so does love between individuals, because that love tends to be circumstantial. Covenantal love is not motivated by or determined by circumstances. It is an enduring relationship that goes beyond the circumstances that one experiences. Now what's important for us to understand as we work through this text is to see the coming application. For there are three common relationships that are sealed by entering into a covenant. And that's what we are to learn from this particular portion of Scripture. Three common covenantal relationships. The first covenant relationship is marriage. There is the public taking of vows to enter into a covenant with one's spouse before the Lord. It is a covenant of faithfulness despite circumstances. And so vows are made, such as for better, for worse, for richer, for poorer, no matter if it's good or bad, no matter if it's hard or easy, no matter what the circumstance, we will be committed to each other until death do we part. That is a covenant that's entered into out of love because human love is fickle. Human love tends to deteriorate. It's there for better. It's not there for worse. It's there for richer, but not for poor. In health, but not in sickness. So the purpose of a covenant is to establish a faithfulness that supersedes circumstances. The second covenant relationship that is often entered into 
is the relationship of a parent to a child. We think of the dedicatory service. A service of dedication is actually a covenantal service. It is parents taking vows before God to have an enduring relationship to their children. And there are a number of promises that are made in that covenantal service of dedicating one's child. And one such promise is this. Inasmuch as God has given you this child, you consecrate him or her to God and his service, and you publicly acknowledge that in so doing, you're submitting yourself to God's will for this child, whatever it may involve. So we're back to this better for worse, for richer, for poor, no matter what it involves, are you going to turn your child over to the Lord and his will? Will you be steadfast? Will you be committed? Will you remain faithful to this child and your duties and responsibilities to this child no matter what? Now it's entered into because of love. But because love is fickle, it needs these promises of abiding faithfulness. The third covenantal relationship that is often entered into is membership in the church. Again, that covenant is established with promises or vows that are made publicly when one enters into membership in the church. One of those promises, among others, is are you willing to submit to the authority of the Lebanon Bio Fellowship Church and to live in keeping with the faith and order of the Bible Fellowship Church? If so, answer yes. So out of a love for the church and out of a love for God's people and out of a love for God, there is this desire to have a relationship to one another. And because love is fickle, there is a promise. And that is to submit to the authority of the church during good times and bad times. During things that you like and things that you don't like. During difficulties and during blessings. It doesn't matter. We will remain faithful to each other because of this enduring quality of love. Hopefully... Hopefully, all of those covenants are entered into because of love with a desire to seeking to have that love endure no matter what. The covenant serves to seal that relationship because love is fickle. The vows that are made are intended to keep that relationship strong when pressures can cause love to wane. So let's see how that works in the text. Let's look at the, the practical applications. First, love is tested by allegiances. The possibility of other loves. Jonathan is going to face some difficult choices between supporting David and supporting his father. Jonathan is going to have to make some difficult 
choices. To take David's side would make him an enemy of his father. Look at verse 30. Then Saul's anger was kindled against Jonathan. And he said to him, You son of a perverse, rebellious woman, do I not know that you have chosen the son of Jesse to your own shame and to the shame of your mother's nakedness? You think I'm not aware that you have made this commitment to Jonathan, that you have chosen to have a relationship over, uh, excuse me, a relationship with, with David that supersedes a blood relationship that supersedes even the family. To take David's side would mean that Jonathan would never become king, verse 31. For as long as the son of Jesse lives on the earth, neither you nor your kingdom is going to be established. Do you realize, Jonathan, Saul says, that in making this commitment to David, you're never going to be king. You nor your children are ever going to become king. Are there ever going to be times in which Jonathan might regret that commitment? Are there times in which he may desire to be king? Could there be forces at work? Could there be influences Could there be circumstances that might cause him to want to have a different relationship to David than what he presently has? And the answer to all those, of course, there could be. And not only is it hypothetical, there will be. There will be. But he has made a promise to remain faithful to David no matter what. Despite all these tensions, Jonathan remained faithful in defending and protecting David. He actually kept these promises. He was faithful to David all of Jonathan's life. And he protected David from his father for all of David's life. He kept the covenant. Secondly, love is tested by cultural and social practices and pressures. We are not living in a bubble. It is is not as though society has no influence upon us when we think about pressures and we think about difficulties. And so there are pressures that come upon a marriage, there are pressures that come upon parenting, and there are pressures that come upon being a member in a church that have to be resisted if one is going to remain faithful to the covenant, faithful to the relationships. We need to to realize that Jonathan made an incredible commitment to David. Jonathan was actually taking his life in his hands. Jonathan was taking his life in his hands. 
And not only his life, but the life of his descendants. Look at 1 Samuel chapter 20, verse 14. If I'm still alive, now we're looking at a time in which David is going to become king over Israel. And Jonathan says, if I'm still alive, all right, if I'm still alive when you become king over Israel, it turns out he's not going to be. Uh, he's going to be killed in battle. But Jonathan doesn't know that. And he says, if I still be alive, show me the steadfast love of the Lord that I may not die. That I may not die. David, promise me that when you become king, you're not going to kill me. Wow. Where did that come from? Here are these two people that are committed to each other and, and love each other, and, and they're going to make all these pacts and agreements. And, and Jonathan says, when you become king, don't kill me. In verse 15, and do not cut off your steadfast love from my house forever. And don't kill my descendants. Don't kill my children when you become king. Verse 16. And Jonathan made a covenant with the house of David, saying, May the Lord take vengeance on David's enemies. So may God destroy your enemies. Well, I'm not one of them. And don't think my descendants are your enemies either. Don't take their lives. Verse 17, And Jonathan made David swear again by his love for him, for he loved him as he loved his own soul. So he made him promise again, Don't take my life. Don't take the lives of my descendants. And Again, we might wonder, why in the world would that even enter into the thinking of Jonathan? Well, because of the societal norm and pressures. Because the norm was that when someone other than a king's descendants would become king, that new king would kill all of the descendants of the former king so that there could not be any claim or a challenge for the kingship. Dale Ralph Davis, in his commentary, says this about the covenant aspect of not wanting to die. I quote, David gave his oath to these provisions. When he came to power, he would preserve both Jonathan's life and that of his descendants. But according to the wisdom of the age, such promises would be regarded as the height or depth of folly. When a new regime or dynasty came to power, the name of the game was Purge. You needn't go wandering into the ancient Near East to confirm this. You can stay within the passages of biblical history and watch Basha, 1 Kings 15, 27 to 30, or Zimri, 
1 Kings 16, 8 to 13, or Jehu, 2 Kings chapter 10, 1 to 4, 11, to find out what happens to the remnants of a previous regime. The new king always needed to solidify his position. It was conventional political policy, solidification by liquidation. Everyone knew it, everyone believed it, everyone practiced it. That is what happened. When a king came to power, he would kill all the descendants of the previous king to make sure that they wouldn't come to power. They were a threat. So Jonathan is going to invest his life into Saul, but he says, but don't kill me and don't kill my children when you become king. He's going to trust that David will keep his word. He's going to believe that it will be well with him and his descendants when David becomes king. Now, putting this into historical perspective and seeing the effects of this covenant, after the death of Saul and Jonathan, descendants of Saul sought the throne. 2 Samuel chapter 2, starting at verse 8. But Abner, the son of Ner, commander of Saul's army, took Ishbosheth, the son of Saul, and brought him over to Manaheim. And he made him king over Gilead and the Asherites and Jezreel and Ephraim and Benjamin and all Israel. Ishbosheth, Saul's son, was 40 years old when he began to reign over Israel. And he reigned two years. But the house of Judah followed David. And the time that David was king in Hebron over the house of Judah was seven years and six months. So after Saul dies, a portion of the kingdom follows David, that is Judah. But the vast majority of the kingdom follows Saul's son, Ishbosheth. What happens is war follows. 2 Samuel chapter 3, verse 1. There was a long war between the house of Saul and the house of David. And David grew stronger and stronger, where the house of Saul became weaker and weaker. Seven years, David is waiting to become king, as God had promised, over all the nation of Israel. I'm not going to take the time to read the passage this morning, but in 2 Samuel chapter 4, we have Ishbosheth's demise. Ishbosheth is betrayed by his army, actually, by even his relatives. And Ishbosheth is killed. Not by David. And not by David's army, but by Ishbosheth's own army. And in 2 Samuel chapter 4, after Ishbosheth dies, David doesn't celebrate. He mourns. He weeps. He is saddened 
by Ishbosheth's death, even though Ishbosheth has been standing in the way of David becoming king over Israel. But he still mourns and he weeps. And then what is even more striking is that despite the fact that Saul's descendants fought against David and sought to deny him the throne, after Ishbosheth dies, when David did finally become king over all Israel, he spared the life of Jonathan's son and treated him kindly because of David's covenant with Jonathan. Now listen to 2 Samuel chapter 9, starting at verse 1. And David said, Is there still anyone left of the house of Saul that I may show him kindness for Jonathan's sake? After he becomes king and after there's been all this warring, David says, Isn't there anybody left alive from Jonathan's family that I can't show him kindness because of my promise to Jonathan? Again, 2 Samuel 9, now verse 3. And the king said, Is there not still someone of the house of Saul that I may show the kindness of God to him? Well, it's discovered that yes, Jonathan has a son. And his son's name is Mephibosheth. So David calls for Meshibosheth to come and appear before David. Mephibosheth thinks that David is summoning him into David's presence so that David can kill him. That's not the case at all. 2 Samuel chapter 9, verse 7, And David said to him, Do not, do not fear. <laughs> I'm not going to kill you. For I will show you kindness for the sake of your father Jonathan. And I will restore to you all the land of Saul, your father, and you shall eat at my table always. I'm going to watch over you. I'm going to protect you. I'm not going to do you any harm. In fact, I'm going to give you everything back that belongs to Saul and his family. You can have it all because of the promise that I made to Jonathan. He wasn't going to act like the kings that were around him. And he was not going to use in his excuse that, you know, your family rebelled against me. Your, your family didn't submit to me like Jonathan did. For seven and a half years, you've been fighting this whole thing. Certainly I couldn't foresee that. Certainly I, I couldn't know that. Certainly I can't be expected to keep my word to Jonathan. No, that, that, wasn't his, that wasn't his take at all. Despite what was done, despite all the pressure, despite the temptation to think, you know, if I show this Mephibosheth kindness, and by the way, he has a son whose name is Micah, 2 Samuel chapter 9, verse 12. What about Micah? He might rise up. And he might say, I am the rightful king over Israel. I am Saul's grandson. I deserve to sit on the throne. 
not David. Despite that, David is going to show kindness and goodness and provide for Micah as well because of the promise that he makes to Jonathan not to kill Jonathan and not to kill Jonathan's descendants. Okay, that's the history. Why is a covenant so helpful in maintaining love and commitment? What is, there, what is magical about a covenant? Why does that promote an endurance that mere love does not? Well, because in entering into a covenant, you are entering into a relationship not only with that other person or entity, but you are also entering into a relationship with God. The whole idea of a covenant is that in keeping a covenant, you are being faithful not to just the other person, you are being faithful to God. Faithful to God. It is based on the idea that one has no higher commitment to anyone than to God. Therefore, in being faithful to the covenant, you are in fact being faithful to God. To break the covenant, you're not only breaking your commitment to the other party, but you're breaking your commitment to God. You are going against what you told God you would do. So why is the covenant helpful in maintaining a relationship? Well, first, because God is seen as the enforcer of the covenant. He holds the violator responsible. If you look at our text, you will see that there's a call for accountability before God. 1 Samuel chapter 20, verse 12. And Jonathan said to David, The Lord God of Israel be witness. The Lord God of Israel be witness. He's holding himself accountable before God. He's saying, may God listen to what we are saying today. May God hold us accountable. If you don't do what you say, and if I don't do what I say, then may God do something about it. Jonathan goes so far as to say, may the Lord do me harm if I do not fulfill the covenant. Look at verse 13. But should it please my father to do you harm, Here's the presupposition. But should it please my father to do you harm, the Lord do so to Jonathan and more also. This is Jonathan speaking. So if my father seeks to do me harm, may God do so to me. That is, may God harm me. All right? If, if Saul is seeking your death, may God seek my death. With this provision, if I do not disclose it to you and send you away, that you may go safely. May the Lord be with you. So here's the deal. Here's the deal. If I don't disclose, if I don't keep my word, if I don't tell you of my father's plan to kill you, if I hide that from you in any way, 
then may God take my life. That's what he says. That's what he says. May God take my life if I don't do what I say you're going to do. He calls upon God as the enforcer of the covenant. God is the enforcer of a covenant. So why is a covenant important? Because God is seen not only as the enforcer of the covenant, but also the enabler of the covenant. The emphasis is on God's steadfast love. A covenant is modeled after God's steadfast love shown to us. And a covenant seeks God's help in maintaining that steadfast love. Look at verse 14. 1 Samuel 20, 14. If I'm still alive, show me the steadfast love of the Lord. That is a descriptive word. Show me the steadfast love. The Lord is steadfast in his love for us. It's not fickle. He's faithful to us, and he's faithful to his promises no matter what. No matter what. This morning, you have the promise of eternal life. And you will have eternal life no matter what. Because God is faithful to his promise. And so now that God who is loving and is faithful to his word, may that same God help us to be loving and faithful to our commitments. That love that caused us to enter into that relationship that begins to wane, begins to deteriorate, begins to fall apart for a host of reasons. May God restore that love in our hearts. May God restore that commitment to our hearts. Notice that a covenant is to endure. It is to bring about a lasting relationship. Look at verse 23. And as for the matter of which you and I have spoken, that is this covenant, behold, the Lord is between you and me forever. 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 Jump down to verse 42. Then Jonathan said to David, go in peace. Because we have sworn, both of us, in the name of the Lord. That's the foundation of the peace. All right? Go in peace. Be at rest. Why? Because we have sworn, both of us, in the name of the Lord, saying, the Lord shall be between you and me and between mine offspring and your offspring forever. Forever. This is going to endure. This isn't going to be fickle. This isn't going to be a daisy. He loves me, he loves me not. He loves me, he loves me not. This isn't going to be a commitment that is solely upon circumstances. This is going to be an enduring, steadfast love because it exceeds anything beyond a human friendship. It exceeds anything beyond a human love. It is a commitment to love as God loves with an enablement that only God provides. Three covenants. The covenant of marriage 
that says, you solemnly promised before God and these witnesses to love, cherish, honor, and protect her and her only, forsaking all others, as long as you both shall live. Do you take as your wedded wife to have and to hold from this day forward for better, for worse, for richer, for poor, in sickness and in health, to love and to cherish till death do you part? Endurance. Endurance no matter what. Promising before God that this love though it may deteriorate and though it may wane, though it may not as be passionate at times as others, but it's founded upon a rock of commitment, a promise before God that says God will hold me accountable and God will enable. God will give me the ability to be faithful in my marriage. So different from a love manifested in simply living together. A trial to see if this is going to work. To see if, if we're compatible. To see if we want this to go any further or any longer. Human love is fickle. God's love is steadfast. The covenant of child dedication and as much as God has given you this child, you consecrate him or her to God in his service, and you publicly acknowledge that in so doing, you're submitting yourselves to God's will for this child, whatever it may involve. Whatever it may come your way. Whatever that child may do. Whatever that child may face. Whatever that child may experience. You promised before God to remain faithful and submit to God in the responsibilities that he has given to you in caring for and nurturing and providing and equipping and nurturing your child. The covenant of church membership when people stand in the front of the church and make vows before God. Are you willing to submit to the authority of the Lebanon Bible Fellowship Church and to live in keeping with the faith and order of the Bible Fellowship Church? Are you willing to remain faithful whether you agree with the decisions or not? Whether you like what is decided or not? Whether the pressures are it's so easy to just leave and forsake that's the whole idea. It's so easy to leave and forsake a marriage. It's so easy to leave and forsake a child. And it's so easy to leave and forsake the church. It's prompted by love. You enter into a covenant because you love your spouse. You love your child. You love your church. But love is fickle. Circumstances can cause it to wane. 
the passion to leave, a desire of restlessness, a covenant endures out of a commitment to love God with our hearts and all our soul and all our might and to recognize that to be unfaithful to the covenant is to be unfaithful to God. A God to whom we are accountable. But more wonderfully, a God who is able to help us who can grant to us a lasting and enduring love for one another, for our spouses, for our children, for our church. A covenant, a covenant in hard times and good times. May God help us to be faithful in all our covenantal relationships our marriages, our parenting, our church. Let us rejoice this morning in God's faithfulness. And just a moment, we're going to sing praise to God's faithfulness. Springtime and harvest. No matter what the circumstances, God is faithful. God is faithful. He has a steadfast love. May God give us a steadfast love. You see, that's chapter 20. It's not just about a human friendship. And it's not just about human love. But it's about a friendship and a love between two people who have a supreme love for God, who make a commitment to each other in the name of God, with accountability before God, with the trust that God will indeed enable them to be faithful to each other. May we rejoice in God's faithfulness to us and his ability to impart to us that same faithfulness in all of our covenantal relationships. Let's pray. Almighty God, we thank you for this supreme example of commitment of David and Jonathan and the way in which they followed through in their covenant commitments. And even in that very striking way in which David remains faithful to Jonathan even after Jonathan's death, he honors the covenant and not even seeking the death of a Shibosheth and then caring for, providing for Mephibosheth and Micah. Lord, help us to be faithful in all of our covenantal relationships. Help us to love and never stop loving. Help us to endure, no matter what the circumstances, no matter what the hardships, for better, for worse, for richer, for poorer, in sickness or in health, Whatever we are going through in each of those areas, in our marriages, with our children, with the church, help us to remain faithful to each other and ultimately to you. For it's in Jesus' name that we pray.
Amen.